Hello and namaste. My name is Samir Kalra, Managing Director with the Hindu American Foundation. Welcome to a very special episode of the That's So Hindu podcast. I'm joined today by two of my colleagues, Matt McDermott, HEF Senior Director of Communications, and Dr. Vijay Satnarayan, HEF Director of Education Strategy, for a free-flowing, entertaining, and always factual conversation about the historic consecration next week of the new temple at the birthplace of Lord Ram in Ayodhya. Of course, the site was at the center of a controversy with the mosque at the Babri Masjid, a legal battle, and riots in India. We'll delve a little deeper into how we got here today, perceptions, reality, and everything in between. Welcome, Vijay and Matt. Thank you, Samir. Thank you. Right. So let's start here at a very basic level. Um, obviously, many of our uh, listeners may already have some context about the consecration of the new Ram Mandir Ram Temple at the birthplace at his birthplace in Ayodhya next week. But for those that don't, maybe Vijay, if you can just start with a very brief uh, context and uh, just kind of timeline of what's happened and how did we get here today? Ooh, the context and the timeline is the is the spicy stuff, right? It's been one that's <laughs> Let's been, start with the spicy <laughs> stuff, and then <laughs> it's been the one that's been debated ad nauseum. And uh, the history, of course, is the reason that the case and the trials took so long. Um, I don't want to start with the 1500s and the destruction of the mandir because what was there before is always very interesting. The spot was marking the birthplace of Ram or not. We can't ever say that with conclusion, because as we know, we're going into legends. Uh, but what we can say is that people were there doing some form of uh, puja and some form of veneration and practice for at least a good couple hundred years before the arrival of Mirbaki and the destruction of the temple that did stand there, as was proven. Um, of course, once the masjid was built, what we can see from history is that there was a kind of tolerance of Hindus using the site, continuing to go to the site, even though it had been destroyed, um, to perform their pujas. And so there's uh, numerous uh, accounts of Hindus going to the site performing pujas. Then come the British. The lovely uh, part that they have to play in this is that when the transfer of power from East India Company to British Empire happened, there was a lot of rioting that was going on across the country. There were some riots in a place called Hanumangari, which is just near um, Ayutthaya, and there were some riots outside the Babri Masjid area. The British interpreted that as a religious riot, and they put up a dividing wall inside the compound that Hindus and uh, Muslims went to. And so that really was the cause of the frustrations that Hindus would come from far and wide to go to this place, and then there would be barred entry. Um, what I like is that the first complaint was written by the muezzin, the person who calls to prayer at the masjid. He says that they've been coming here for centuries and they've never had an issue. Why is it suddenly becoming an issue? And that was because, of course, that they were barred from coming in. So 1800s, lots of problems. Uh, The court cases start because, of course, British are administering the place. And then finally, of course, politics gets involved um, in the 80s and the 90s. The destruction of the masjid happens. and All along, we were relying on the hearsay of scholars. Finally, due to the court cases, they had to rely on facts. The courts demanded archaeological surveys and digs be done. And that is why we are where we are today, the the consecration of the Numurti of Ram. 
So hey, let me let me jump in here, and I I really I'm thrown because I'm normally listeners will recognize I'm normally on the other side asking questions. So I'm going to take that producer's prerogative. So what I overheard yesterday, just I was passing by. I was in a museum, and there was a woman uh, giving. She wasn't a museum employee. She, she was just like with a larger group of friends showing some Buddhist relics, and was and the the temple came up, the inauguration came. And she was saying, for all we know, there was Buddhist worship going on the site, too. Do we have anything um, to indicate that? Because I realized, as you said, we're going off into myth and history past a certain point here. We have documentation past a certain point. But when she was really just sort of going off into the hoary past, do we have any indication that there was anything Buddhist going on at this site? Um, One of the issues that I think people really put outside of their mind is how the archaeological record preserves things, Um, especially in Saudi Arabia, in uh, the Middle East, where you've got very, very dry climates. You can have the survival of palm leaf manuscripts, of clay tablets, of stone artifacts, even of wooden artifacts for tens of thousands of years. Even, However, in the case of a wet, hot, humid place, like Ayodhya and uh, Uttar Pradesh, you're talking about places where something surviving is, uh, you know, you've got a chance in hell of your <laughs> stuff surviving for more than a couple hundred years. What they did find, though, was uh, stone pillars. They found uh, brick uh, stairs and um, the foundations of various structures. Because all of those bits and pieces were destroyed to such an extent, either through the destruction of Mirbaki or over time, you can't really see the facial features. And if you know anything about ancient history in India, you know that uh, the language of Tantra, the language of Vaishnava, the language of Shaiva and Buddha Tantra and Jain Tantra as well, they all share very similar uh, features. And it's only when you see the finery of those features can you make a decision. Um, There could have been Buddhist worship, but what we are going to ask then is, why was there Buddhist worship at that place? Does it make sense? The um, Valmiki Ramayana is talking about Ayodhya from the time the Valmiki Ramayana was uh, composed. So it's more likely that that place was a temple. And then the Vishnu Hari inscription of the 12th century confirms it. But, you know, I think that makes uh, brings up a good point, because I think what um, when we look at Lord Ram, he is a unifying figure across traditions, right? I mean, if you look even, and, you know, I can't speak necessarily historically going, you know, very far back, but even looking today at various Buddhist uh, majority countries or societies, Ramayan is one of the biggest art and cultural forms that is still celebrated to this day um, in Thailand or uh, Cambodia, Vietnam, all these countries, not to mention some Muslim majority countries such as Indonesia as well. Um, similarly, uh, among Sikhs, I mean, a very important part of that historical process in reclaiming the site was the role played by Nihang Sikhs, uh, a tradition within Sikhism. And they actually were one of the first, I think, during the colonial period to actually perform a puja and a havan there, um, or, or, or rituals there, Hindu rituals there at the site. So I think, you know, uh, when people get into the semantics of where the, was there this worship or that worship, I think what we can come away with is that 
Ram is a civilizational symbol, figure, uh, deity, and something that belongs to, I think, all people, not just in the subcontinent, but beyond. Um, you know, how would you view that interaction between traditions and their, uh, you know, um, their love, really, for, uh, for Lord Ram, this Vijay or Matt? I mean, I'll, I'll jump in at the beginning and then Matt, for sure, I'd love to hear your perspective on this. Um, you know, you, you say the name of the Nihangsik. Uh, his name was Nihangsik Fakir Khalsa. And he was a resident of Punjab. And on the 28th of November, 1858, he and 25-6 uh, entered uh, the portion that was sealed off to uh, Hindus. And they did, uh, they actually performed puja of Guru Gobind Singh Ji and established a Nishan Sahib and did puja of Sri Ramji. Three things happened there. That's a very interesting thing if you think about how the Western media portrays Sikh and Hindu relations today. Well, um, I mean, not just portrays. I mean, the, the, the relations are far, you know, since the 1850s to now, the lines between all the Dharmic traditions have become, at least in many people's minds, harder. Right. Ironically, not not as hard for some of the quote unquote, you know, most right wing conservatives who will still try, will still argue that these are all part of a greater Hindu tradition, cultural, spiritual tradition. Yeah. And I mean, it's a wonder, therefore, that we have a lot of gratitude towards Professor K.K. Muhammad of the Archaeological Sur Survey of India. K.K. Muhammad, as a Muslim practicing devout Muslim uh, who writes in Malayalam as well as, uh, of course, English, he is the one who defended the fact that you have to, as an archaeologist, uh, base yourself on the evidence and not like his counterparts in the historian world, Irfan Habib and other avowed Marxist scholars. Um, he had to defend himself against the onslaught that was uh, being leveled at the archaeologists by Marxist historians. I mean, that's another entire story we can go into, but it is fascinating to see that Muslim archaeologists, uh, Nihang Sikhs, all together are validating the fact that the Janmabhumi Sthan was and is Ram's Janmabhumi. Yeah. And, you know, that brings up a great uh, transition, I think. Facts and reality versus perception or the distortion of that. Uh, Matt, I want to come to you. And just if we look at how this um, issue, this, this site has been talked about in the media, both Indian media traditionally, as well as Western media, um, versus what the facts are, or let's say either a deliberate or flagrant, um, you know, uh, a failure to actually look at facts or uh, not, you know, using facts to when they're writing about the site. Why do you, where do you think that comes from? Um, um, and why, when, as Vijay pointed out, there is archaeological evidence, there was a, you know, uh, probably decades of, you know, legal cases um, that actually came out and showed that there was a temple at this site. Now we can go back and say, you know, in the 90s when the, the masjid was torn down, that was not the right way to do things. But, you know, that being said, when we look at what's happened afterwards, it was done through, you know, the legal process to try to find out, you know, who should be the rightful, um, you know, uh, owners of that site. And was there a temple there, et cetera. And what the facts have come out, it was clearly a that there was a temple there and b the legal judgment was that there, you know, 
um, that should come back to Hindus and they should be allowed to build a temple there. And at the same time, a, a plot of land was given to Muslims nearby to build a new mosque. Um, but when these facts are, are talked about in the media, you just think that it's a, you know, basically, again, another example of oppressor Hindus um, persecuting Muslims, no context, no history, no, you know, legal judgments, nothing is actually, you know, considered. You talk a little bit about the perception versus reality or the case that's presented in the media. Absolutely. It really boggles my mind. And I wish I had a short answer for why this happened. I really don't know. But it is something that I've seen for many years when it comes to issues of Hindu history or history that concerns Hindus. You know, in the past week, we've had, I've seen two articles in uh, Western media, BBC Foreign Policy. One, I won't name the authors because I'm not I don't want to be in the business of calling out people specifically for these things. One is an Indian orange and author. One is not. And in both cases, their story of the construction of this new temple, they take it back to the, to past the destruction of Babri Masjid to it's not even its creation, but just that a mosque stood on this site. Nobody goes back, at least in these two examples, and they're indicative of many many, many, many bits of reporting on it for many years. It, they go back to, Babri Masjid sto- stood on the site. Nobody goes back into history and talks about the fact that Babri Masjid was constructed over um, a temple that was there before. A series of temples, if you look at the archaeology, you know, at least a place of worship going back, you know, into a few millennia. And what happens when you start with a mosque being there? Don't talk about the fact that it was built over the remains, a, a temple that was destroyed, and we have documentation that it was destroyed. Is that a false or very incomplete picture emerges? You, you ha- have a story that says there is a mosque here for several hundred years, and then in the 90s, a bunch of, and I'm this is the characterization that comes across a bunch of violent Hindus who quote unquote claim that there was a temple here beforehand. Remember that the archeology span says that there was, we have, I believe evidence showing that it was destroyed. A bunch of these crazy Hindus who are now become violent over their quote unquote mythological claims about this being the birthplace of Lord Ram. And they've torn down a mosque. So you, you get a perception that Hindus are violent, the Hindus are irrational, that Hindus don't understand history because they're just attacking this building. When, if you look at the history more completely and go back farther into the past, you see that there, there is a justification for the feeling that, wait, this, this place of Muslim worship was built on top of a place of Hindu worship or Dharmic worship. I'll leave it at Dharmic just because we don't know all the history and who actually worshiped there. And also because, as Vijay pointed out, some Sikhs came in. And we're worshiping there as well. And it's just, it's not the full story. If you look at that, you see that, or at least you can understand, have a hint to understand why Hindu tensions on this place run so hot. And for a reader who doesn't know that history, it doesn't prevent, present the full story. And it, for the BBC, for foreign policy, for organizations that are held up as paragons of objectivity, we can debate that. 
And I think both or both publications have varying records depending on what part of the world they're talking about. You know, it, it, it's a critical fail. And I and I, as I said, I wish I had a short answer to it. And I don't know why it happens, mm-hmm. but it does repeatedly. Yeah, no, that it's it's kind of, uh, I think, very perplexing, uh, to say the least. How would you contrast that, Matt, as a follow up with how the reclaiming of some you know, Native American or indigenous sites, sacred sites in the U.S. has been where those either those lands have been taken by the government, U.S. government over the years or have been, you know, uh, destroyed or other you know, types of structures have built over those sacred lands. And you know, there was a kind of, I think, a movement in the last you know, several years to reclaim some of those sites. And, you know, if I remember correctly, the media was very sympathetic in how they covered um, basically those movements in, in a basically an attempt that, hey, there was a wrong when those sites were illegally taken or something was constructed over them. And now there's a form of justice that's happening by them being able to reclaim their sacred sites. Yeah, I think there's. There's some parallels. They're not they're not direct, but I think who is supporting the whether it's actually the land back movement, people that don't know land back movement would be giving land in the in North America back to Native American groups that was taken from them, or say renaming mountains or place names along traditional Native American names, which personally, if that that drive to rename things is coming from Native American groups themselves, I'm all for it, or at least a co-naming of it, just to build recognition of this is what happened. I mean, the and I think that the difference between the situation in Yoga and giving Native American lands back, or part of it is that in the Native American case, there isn't much of a debate about if some site that's now that has been people want to mine uranium on or some bit of land that has been sacred to people in, say, the southwest of the United States. Nobody, nobody's really debating that it was at one point. In Ayodhya, we were having a basic conversation about archaeology. And the people doing the archaeology, the Archaeological Survey of India, are seemingly are being doubted by mainstream reporters. Now, the Archaeological Survey of India is a large organization, you know, a, a major robust organization, but its findings and conclusions are doubted in this case for political reasons. If, you know, if whatever the equivalent organizations are in the United States, in the in UK, France, you know, it, nobody would be sitting there saying, well, you know, we, we don't actually agree with those conclusions. We think you're faulty. So there, there's that issue. But the, the parallel or the more direct parallel, perplexing one, is who's supporting this. It, it, it would generally be considered a left-wing issue to talk about l- reparations for Native American land taken in North America or used in North America, renaming. The sympathy there comes from the left. You, in India, when we come to this issue, the sympathy, it's described as a right-wing issue. Reclaiming an old sacred site is, in India, a right-wing issue, a deeply conservative issue, a Hindu nationalist issue, and is opposed by people on the left. And that's, I find that very interesting. There are another, I think listeners need to be aware that the political sides in, in India versus the West on some issues flip. I mean, to, to digress for two seconds, it's like vegetarianism is considered a very left-wing issue in the, in the West. You know, you're some country tree hugger, whereas in India, it's portrayed as a deeply conservative issue. 
you know? And so you get into some topsy-turvy worlds. So I find that very interesting. And one thing I think that comes down to is who is promoting it. In India, you have Marxist historians promoting this politicized history of it, which I know Vijay is dying to talk about because we've talked about this a number of times before this. Recording. Yeah. Yeah. Before we get into that, I, I mean, I think the animal rights or the vegetarian and vegetarian issue is like a perfect just uh, juxtaposition of this, the kind of the f- f- way things are flipped. It's kind of like animal rights activists or, you know, people that are supportive of vegetarianism in the, in the West are saying, let's kill more animals in India because that's what uh, the minorities want. Oh, you know, yeah. Just- the most le- leftist, um, Dalit right at Dalit's rights activists in the west will be they'll have like beef eating parties to try to uh, offend or goad hindus into offense and i don't know what they're trying to do it's it's designed to provoke a response or you have sikhs in the west who will be on the street at a pro-palestinian march saying we we're we're on the side of the people who are oppressed all over the world and they'll be sitting there saying that you know, well, Sikhism never advocated vegetarianism counterfactually. It's 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 a topsy turvy world sometimes, and it it's hard to keep the you know keep your perspective straight. No, absolutely. Um, I think coming to you, Vijay. Obviously, the media is one piece of this that has created a narrative, but I think at the root, and you alluded to this before, is the role of, um, and I'm going to say academics with quotation air quotation marks around them because. I think any true scholar or academic just follows where the facts take them um, rather than, you know, put out their agenda and then let the create the facts to support it. Um, what role have academics played, I think, particularly when this issue came through the courts um, and the archaeological evidence started to come up in the 80s and the 90s? Uh, sorry, not in the 80s, but in the 90s coming forward. Um, what role did they play in one, you know, perhaps politicizing this issue even further and making it creating more tensions between Hindus and Muslims? And B, um, what role did they play in actually shaping the narrative and how this uh, issue has been looked at more widely and publicly? Sure. This is going to sound like a plug for, you know, the resourcing of education drives across <laughs> Dharmic outfits. Uh, but it really is as simple as education. If anybody has read a Marxist playbook, they know how the weaponization of pedagogy and education uh, fits into the spread of Marxist ideology. And I'm not here to um, lambast Marxism. That's way beyond my scope of expertise. But what I will speak on is the experience of being an academic, an expert on Indology, on the study of South Asia, uh, ancient India, uh, and its related diasporas, And then looking at what these people were able to get away with, how are they empowered to get away with what they actually got away with? Um, I'm speaking specifically, and unlike Matt, I'm going to call names. Uh, Ram Sharan Sharma, the founding chairman of the uh, Indian Council of Historical Research, who was a professor at many universities, but also specifically Delhi University. Uh, Muhammad Atrali uh, of Aligarh Muslim University. Vijendra Nath Jha of Delhi University and Suraj Bhan of Kurukshetra University. Their masterstroke was strategy. And I want us to think about the use of media in this strategy also, but, you know, Matt can speak to that a bit later. Um, 
What they did was to write a report to the nation. That was what they titled it. Ramjan Mabhumi Babri Masjid, a historian's report to the nation, published 91. And what they went on to do in there was to lambast every kind of um, a piece of evidence that had come up to the courts by that point. Their report was cited again and again in the court, taking up time. Needless time was wasted discussing the contents of their report. But their master stroke was that they didn't turn up themselves. They, uh, so when you look at the records of the courts, you will see people like Supriya Varma, Suvira Jaiswal, R. Thakran, Sitaram Roy, S.C. Mishra, Sushil Srivastava, and D. Mandal. And when you look at those, uh, their testimonies, you'll say, okay, they're listed here as experts. They know what they're talking about. However, when you go and look at what their testimony was, by the way, 533 pieces of uh, exhibits, one, uh, 13,990 pages worth of testimony that spans eight languages that required translation again and again. Can you imagine what a mammoth undertaking it was for the courts to adjudicate this? But those particular so-called experts, one of them claimed that their expertise was on the basis of newspaper articles and conversations with their colleagues. A second one said, I can neither read nor write Persian, Arabic, or Sanskrit. What I know is on the basis of what I've heard. S.T. Mishra, who, is, uh, who was at the time professor of Delhi University, um, he didn't even know what jizya was and said that Prithvi Raj Chauhan was a king of Ghazni. Now, the chief thing about these people that I've named is who their PhD supervisors were and who were the people who got them into the jobs. Guess who they were? The four that I named before, the authors of the report. People in high-powered positions, empowered by Marxist ideology uh, sympathizers. Um, all of them, by the way, and this is you know on their Wikipedia pages, uh, that they're listed as Marxist historians. I uh, made a remark to, Mark, uh, to Matt yesterday that how can you have a Marxist historian giving testimony uh, about a, uh, you know, a topic of deep religious belief and uh, that being taken as if it is the gold standard? Can you imagine it, a Marxist it, it, blow, it blows my mind. I mean, not, not just that. I mean, people can weigh in on whatever they want. But the fact yeah. that, that, that I can't wrap my head around is how a Marxist historian weighing in on archaeology is taken as as authoritative by Western sources. When we're, when, if a Marxist historian was weighing in on, you know, the history of Christianity, the history of Westminster Abbey, the history of something, would anybody take them seriously? They would not at all. Well, Matt, I would take it one step further. It's not considered even one authoritative source amongst many. It's considered the authoritative sure. source. Sure. So if you then challenge it, from a different perspective, then you are the extremist. You are the one that has no grounding in these issues. I'm sure Vijay can attest to much more than I can. Well, let me, because there's so many examples, let me just hone in on one very specific claim I'm going to make. Very weird, very odd claim that I'm going to make. That a Marxist Muslim historian commits Islamophobia by deriding and dismissing all of the statements that K.K. Muhammad made uh, on the basis of the archaeology. I'm not even going to say he was supporting the Ram Mandir. I think on the basis of, a, of his studies and his archaeology, um, and of course the rest of the team, 
for Irfan Habib to say that the, the Vishnu Hari inscription, oh, during the demolition of the masjid, the Karsevaks went to the, uh, the local museum and stole that uh, stolen inscription and brought it to the site. Can you imagine that? So, so it was a false flag to use modern parlance. Yeah, that's what Irfan <laughs> Habib did to KK Muhammad. I call that, and on, on, on the part of these Marxist historians, every time they silence Muslim um, uh, practitioners who are also scholars, who have done archaeological work on the site, every single time that they do that, I can't hear a help but hear the bells of Islamophobia ringing in my ears. But I don't know why these people are allowed to get away with it. I think because the end product of who's being affected is Hindus at the end of the day. And uh, I think that's where people just either don't care or that's part of the agenda, which brings us back to, um, you know, so you talked a little bit about how kind of this fall, you know, false denial of the evidence was played out through, you know, the strategy by a small select group of academics and how that trickled down to others that then testified in the courts and how it dragged it, you know, out for many, uh, many years unnecessarily. Um, what did also that do to the, the relationship between Hindus and Muslims? Was it always, you know, were they always at odds over this site? Um, did they, these academics by almost forcing Muslims into a position of opposing the creation of a, of a Ram Mandir there almost worsen things? Can you talk a little bit about that um, vis-a-vis the academics and scholars, uh, Marxist ones? Yeah. Um... I don't want to go about making wild accusations, but what I will say is that there's definitely a case for the research to be conducted in the timeline of their publications and their speeches and the effects that it had in in broader society. I'll say this much. The structures that support, proliferate, and amplify the work of these people are still at large in the world today and are definitely the cause of why a serious scholarship is always sidelined in favor of a populist scholarship. Uh, well, I, let me give you a couple of uh, points. Um, Irfan Habib, all of these people that I've talked about, Romila Tapar, all of these Marxist historians in India, they're coming up in Lutin's Delhi. Uh, they're coming up inside that network, which is very elitist and very um, money. They're the ones that are being invited to uh, have visiting fellowships in the UK, in the US. Uh, they're the ones that are, being, uh, that are being invited as the representative of all of Indian civilization and the expertise of all of Indian civilization through the mouth of a brown person, which, of course, with DEI means that a representative of that civilization is confirming what is being said. I'm not only going to limit the effects of their words. Uh, and the, the dissent and dissension that's being created to India, I'm going to say that it fuels what happens in Pakistan, Bangladesh, um, in Indonesia. I'm going to say it gives uh, you know, courage to people in the United States, Canada, uh, Europe. To, I mean, we only have to look back to a couple of years ago in Leicester. Was it last year? Uh, the riot two years, years ago. Yeah, last year. Was it two two last year? 2022, I believe, wasn't it? Or no? It, it was in the pandemic time, which is one gigantic long year for me. <laughs> so just to wrap that up, uh, I will never be able to say to our Hindu people, look, our Hindus have a little bit of a hand in this as well. Uh, we haven't yet understood how important education is to be a part of the answer to this trouble. 
the more that we can get Hindus in through serious scholarship. Serious scholarship doesn't only mean go and look at the Qurans, learn the history via the Qurans or the Ved or whatever. It also means learn what world history is telling us. See where the overlaps are, see where there are problems, go and ask questions, figure it out. Uh, but do so in a way that is um, uh, meaningful, but also reliant on facts in the way that our own rishis and munis would have preceded. If you do so, you can become a, uh, a Hindu person who has got good scholarship that can actually give an answer to these people. When these people were around, there was no one who could give a, a, a compelling counter argument because they would always go back into some fantastical story. So we need to up our game is one part of the answer. Uh, but in the um, in the case of these Marxist historians, I think that the more that we allow um, them to go unchallenged, the more that we will see Hindus versus Muslims uh, being the topic of discussion whenever it comes to Hindus or India. And also, uh, the more that these people are unchallenged, uh, the less that we are going to be able to understand exactly how much of mainstream is controlled by them and their narrative. By mainstream, you're saying mainstream narrative discussions, perspectives on India. Everything. I mean, the, the conversations at the home dinner table all the way through to what you see in uh, cinema. Uh, to the con I mean, it's a giant case of confirmation bias. Do, do, you think it, do you think that the average person in the West that, it, that hears, hears these pronouncements or conclusions from Marxist historians, do, do they just not hear the word Marxist? You know what I'm saying? It's just it, it, because I, keep, I can't get, get past this that i mean it's it's the same thing that w well i mean that's the same thing it's you know it's it, yeah. it, it just blows my mind it's like what, what, what why doesn't the fact when you when you see marxist historian insert name here a, yeah. a red flag goes up unintended mm. you know to be like hey wait at least i know they're coming from this perspective and maybe i need to filter that somehow I would only proffer this. Uh, there's the old adage of the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Sure. Right. Um, and I think that if there is a common goal, I'm not going to name names of these various camps, but if the common goal, if a goal is to show that Hindus are uncivilized, backwards, superstitious, if there is a goal to show that Hindus are lost, wayward, they need to be corrected, um, if there is a, a goal to show that um, Hindus are always oppressive, then if the, the people who have that kind of hatred, if they get hold of one or two things that they can focus on, even if them themselves, they have huge gulfs of uh, both centuries and millennia of differences and philosophical, theological differences, whatever it be, those people who have been warring themselves for millennia will suddenly find themselves united uh, on this particular purpose. So we, we can't see this as a us versus them thing, as they would like us to believe it is. It is actually a lot more complex. And I do believe that part of the answer is the enemy of my enemy is my friend. I think it allows people to believe what they want to believe, like you said, the confirmation bias. So if people in general believe that, you know, Indians are backwards superstitious or Hindus are that way. And then you see a brown person saying this about their own country, civilization, you know, majority religion, et cetera, it allows people to say, yes, you know, that is exactly, you know, maybe it's unconscious, 
um, and not necessarily, you know, they're actively thinking that way. But I think there is something there that's that unconscious bias that definitely plays into it. Um, as and I think that's a, probably a whole nother podcast discussion, because that, as you mentioned, is quite complex. But as we wrap up here, I want to, you know, turn the conversation a little bit to a positive side um, and ask you both, um, you know, why are Hindus across the world celebrating this moment uh, so much? Is it because it is a victory over Muslims, as is often portrayed in the media? Or is there something else at play here? And this is not just in India. This is, you know, in the diaspora as well. Um, and you see, you know, just the jubilation, the, you know, the, the pure devotion that people have. But even those that are not, you know, maybe are more atheist in nature, but identify as Hindus um, feel, you know, very proud, happy about this moment. Can you talk a little bit about that? Maybe Vijay first and then Matt um, in the diaspora as well. Sure. I mean, the the victory here, if anything, would be the victory of justice. What do I mean by that? There is always this notion that Indian courts don't get to the truth until, you know, centuries and centuries have passed. People who've got civil cases in the courts know this. Um, it usually takes decades sometimes to get a judgment. But over the past uh, 10 years or so, things have started to speed up. Um, what I will say is that the length and the breadth of these, uh, the, this particular case, uh, you know, originally uh, four suits, at some time five suits, many different um, appellations attached to them, um, started in a district court, went to the high court, and then was uh, dealt with by the Supreme Court. Uh, the high court judgment stands, it was just ratified and clarified by Supreme Court. I don't know if they did it 100% well or not, but what I, will, uh, what I can say is that Hindus are celebrating not because it's a victory of Hindus over Muslims, both Hindus and Muslims got land in the, in the um, settlement. Uh, Muslims got seven acres of land. Uh, the site itself was given to uh, the two Hindu parties, the two Hindu civil cases. The issue here that I want to kind of put in front of people, because they've heard so much of this, oh, this is a BJP thing, oh, this is a BJP thing. No, the courts rejected the uh, politicians' uh, advances many times. Uh, and actually demanded that this would be treated as a civil case. And so the original two civil uh, suits and the, the, central Sunni work, uh, the Sunni Central Waqf Wars, those are the three parties that are uh, the victors in this case. So that's why I'm personally happy. I think other people are happy because Ram has meant so much to so many people. I'm going to be a little bit controversial here. Ram is not a perfect person. Ram was trying to show us how to try and be perfect people. What kinds of things you can do to try and perfect your life in as much as is possible on this earth. And I think of that, the very realness, he didn't go about killing his predecessors in order to, be, in order to become a king. At the drop of a hat, his dad said, leave it. And he left everything. That kind of, those kind of human values, you don't get to hear often. Why is it the case you mentioned? Bali, from, from even further afield in the East all the way to the West, people appreciate this story. It has been, personally speaking, it has been how my family survived years of indentorship. Over 200 years of indentorship, the only way that they, uh, you know, the people in the West Indies, in Fiji, Mauritius, they, they actually 
were only able to feel happy when they gathered and they sang the Ramayana. They didn't have temples, but they recited whatever they remembered. So Ram is much more than just, oh, we've got a piece of land back from these people. I don't want ever this case to be trivialized in that manner. And media and uh, you know scholars that do this, I think, are willfully oblivious on one hand or absolutely out to get us on the other hand. You could choose wherever you are on that spectrum. But I think this Ayodhya uh, victory on the verdict is a victory of law, is the victory of evidence, and is the victory of the ability not to be swayed by political wins and aspiration. Matt, I'll give you the last word. Yeah, I know. I was going to, I would say, that was, that was good. I, I, I do think it's a victory for archaeology and evidence. You know, I, but to go back to the beginning of the, the question, is it, a, is it a Hindu over Muslim thing? You know, if, I'm, uh, if I was reporting on this, I guarantee I can find some Hindu that will say that. But is that the majority view? Absolutely not. No way. I, you know, it's like I come, my entry into Hinduism through as a strong Shaivite tradition where Ram doesn't play a strong role. But I think even people like me, who that's our philosophical, spiritual perspective, have to recognize it's a significant turning point. It's a momentous occasion for the history of Hindu Dharma. You know, it's, it's a slight, not even a slight, a serious corrective and recognition that many, many, many Hindu temples were destroyed historically. And the arc of Hindu history and memory is very long. And people shouldn't discount, non-Hindus shouldn't discount the fact that this is still an emotive issue. You know, nobody tells Jews you should get over the Holocaust. Nobody tells Armenians you should get over the Armenian genocide. Nobody tells, you know, people in India, modern nations of India and Pakistan, they should get over partition. But this, this is, to me, a similar thing. We're talking about destruction of temples that go back and these many centuries. But these are still real issues for people. And we're seeing a corrective right now for that. And I think that is a, that's a positive thing. You know, I won't weigh in on the politics of why it's open now. It's, you know, the final construction won't be done for several years, you know, and the nitty gritty of Indian politics. To me, that, that is the normal level of politics in every nation of the world. People do that sort of thing all the time. And pe- people reading our articles shouldn't fixate on those parts about why is it being done now ahead of elections. There is a political factor. That isn't the main story at all. The main story is this archaeology court cases playing out to address a historical and a historical emotional issue for Hindus, you know, building a temple on the site of, you know, Lord Ram's birth. It's, it's a major occasion. This shouldn't be downplayed. Absolutely. Um, and I will just wrap it up with my comment that to me, it's a civilizational healing moment of healing. And the lesson I think going forward is that whatever happened in the past, those in the present should not be blamed for it. But what happened in the past should not be hidden or suppressed. And there needs to be an open an honest conversation about it in order to allow more healing and to prevent conflict going forward. Um, you look at truth commissions after any major, you know, event, conflict, war, genocide that happens around the world. India has still not had an open truth commission, if you will, that looks at 
openly and honestly the past without blaming anybody in the present, but having those open discussions about it to allow that healing to occur. And until that happens, you will still see uh, more flashpoints, more conflict. So I think as we celebrate this moment and we look at it, and I look at it as a moment of healing, I think more of that needs to occur for uh, the betterment of India, for all people in the subcontinent uh, to move forward together. And I think with that, uh, we'll wrap up our discussion today. Thank you very much, both Vijay and Matt, for the enlightening conversation. And uh, please do follow us listeners at Hindu American. Uh, we're going to be putting out a lot of content around the Ram Mandir um, issue more broadly. So make sure to check it out at our website, HinduAmerican.org or on social media at Hindu American. Thank you so much. Namaste. And we'll talk to you later. Well, that's it for this episode of That's So Hindu. If you enjoyed it, please take a minute and leave us a nice five-star review. It's how you can help the show get discovered by more listeners. You can help ensure that more of these get made by making a donation to HAF at hinduamerican.org slash donate. Thanks again for listening.